Hey everybody, this is Jimmy Bob from The Proven Ones, and you're listening to Talking Blues. Let's start with your father. Because I get the impression, yeah, your dad, I get the impression, your dad was a major musical influence on you. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, the thing about dad was he was my first musical or ties to any kind of anything musical. So he was a he worked in construction. He was a general contractor. And every night when he'd come home after work, he'd sit out on the front porch that he had built himself, of course, and uh, have his uh, happy hour. And he'd play uh, guitar and sing. And I can just remember being so excited watching him play uh, and make music, just him and a guitar, that I would start laughing. I would literally just start, <laughs> as a little kid, I would just start laughing. I thought, I didn't know exactly what was happening to me, I don't think, but I guess it was just the fact that this person that I love so much was able to do this thing that was so, and he was so entertaining. He was a very entertaining person when he, in many different ways, but when he played music, it was, uh, he was very animated and it was just, yeah. So that's, that was like my first tie. And um, I didn't really start playing drum. Well, did you want to go on from there or? Oh, well, no, I'm, I'm quite interested in, in, in just that. I mean, did he treat it like a show? Was it just a family thing? Like No, he would just, he was just sitting there. I mean, sometimes some of his workers would be around and so he would sing and play and it wasn't necessarily like a show and he wasn't really playing for the neighborhood or anything. It was just something that he enjoyed doing. He was also, I've got the guitar actually right there hanging up on the wall that he got when he got out of the war. He was in World War II for the last part of it and um, had gone in when he was 16 or 17, I think. So he was pretty young um, and he got that guitar it's an old Kono. Uh, it's uh, uh, it's not a steel string. It's um, just a nylon, but it's sort of a knockoff of a Martin. And um, so he uh, he was he was one of those guys that he could play not just the guitar, but he could play just about anything. If you gave him any instrument from just about anywhere, in about five minutes, he was doing something on it. You know, which is not unlike. Uh, my uncle, my dad's brother, Uncle Bill, he played first clarinet, uh, I think all the way up into midway through high school until they found out that he he couldn't even read music. I, is it correct to assume that he, he played the blues or did he play? Mostly, Everything. but there was kind of his own kind of blues. He, he particularly, as far as blues went, um, I think he was more sort of like a uh, Lightning Hopkins kind of uh, Leon Redbone type thing. I mean, he didn't listen to a lot of uh, traditional blues. There was always music going on in the house. And he had a lot of cool records, which I later in my teens, I ended up stealing. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, he was, it was pretty eclectic what he was listening to, but um, he, he was never one. He, he never did his, his first professional gig was when he was 72 years old after we had made a record together with he and myself and my brother and some friends. So he was never really a professional musician. And he certainly was not like a student of the blues, much like many of us or I was, 
you know, right. in my early years. Um, so I presume that you're the one who recorded your dad. What was that experience? Yeah. Like? <laughs> what was it like? <laughs> yeah. Well, that was pretty interesting. They were still living. My parents were still living down in Southern California in the high desert in Victorville. And my brother and I convened down there with them. Um, Dad's songs were not unlike uh, sort of Bob Dylan-ish that were, they were very wordy. Right. I had this, I had to have this uh, music stand up and he had, and his sight was not very good because you got to remember when we were recording this, he was 70 at the time. So we had these, lyric sheets that were out that were four pages long spread across <laughs> right right i would get the mic set up and then i was in another room i was in the, out in the garage with the drums my brother was in the bathroom and my dad was in his room and so we we're recording and as we would get farther through the song the the vocals would start trailing off like this they started getting quieter <laughs> because the lyrics were so long he was getting so <laughs> it was it was quite quite a or uh quite a uh a project it, it was fun definitely the other thing is is that he he thought he was sort of knowledgeable about chords and whatnot and i remember him writing out lead sheets for my brother and my brother came to me and said jimmy there's there's maybe one chord that's right on any of these songs here <laughs> and i'm like well just do the best you can and follow along you know and and he never did anything exactly the same you know twice ever so it worked out just fine <laughs> and then I brought the I brought the music. I did it on a little, just a little uh, cassette recorder that was an eight track cassette recorder. And I brought that back up to Portland. And I had a bunch of great people up here in Portland. At the time, I was in a band called Federale, and there was a guy named Mark Ford that was the guitar player with another band called the Black Crows, who had just left. Right, Black Crows. And so he was here in town when we I was doing some work with with Federale. So so Mark Ford who was kind of a, a rock star at the time, honestly, you know, yeah. he played on my dad's record <laughs> and, and I had all these other great people, Fred Trujillo and Jim Wallace and whatnot, the harmonica player, bass player here. But I just remember my dad saying, you know, who is that on that guitar that was playing that slide on my song, you know, on that song with me. And I said, that's Mark Ford. Oh, he's pretty good. I go, yeah, he's, he's pretty good dad. <laughs> What a great gift to give your dad. Well, I'm really glad that we did it. Yeah. I'm really glad. Um, I just lost my parents, both of them, two years ago, uh, 12 days apart. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. You know, dad made it. He wanted to make it to 90, and he did. And my mom would have been 92. Um, and, and both my parents were just really, really supportive. My mom used to tell people at gigs, she said, and I remember... I remember when I got to hear him play for free when he was practicing around the house. So I'm very glad that we, you know, that I took the time to, to go down there and, and do that. On a side note, you know, after we did that, my mom didn't think too much about, about it, but we actually put the record out and, and it went out on, on CD baby and it went out um, and, and got some pretty good reviews here and there. And every time he get a check from, from the CD baby, he would say, ha, 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 But he also, he also kind of bugged me uh, here and there over the years. Say, well, I sure like to do another CD sometime. And, you know, and I thought about it and we tried to get going on it. The older he got, it was harder for him to play. And 
and that never came to fruition. But just to have the one was really something. It's a great memory. And, you know, having my brother involved in kind of a family affair was it was really something. In fact, one of the songs off of that CD is what my dad specifically asked for to have playing um, when he was getting ready to check out. You know, my brother and my niece and I were actually fortunate enough to be there with him. And so we had a song playing called uh, Don't Know Nothing About the Blues, one of the ones that uh, he wrote and we recorded on that CD. And yeah, that was the last thing he heard before he left. Does your brother play professionally? No, Jerry's never played professionally. Um, I'm only laughing because I love my parents. I would have never asked for any different parents, that's for sure. But dad was not very subtle. Um, I remember when we both, my brother did start playing guitar when he was in grade school or something. And later I took up the drums when I was in high school. And I remember my dad saying, you know, your brother, Jerry, he's a lot more talented than you. <laughs> you know, but the, he's got a knack for music, but there's no sense in having seven eights or eight eights or, or sorry, seven tenths or eight tenths talent. If you don't put in that last three or two tenths talent uh, practice. And uh, he said, now you, you, you might have maybe three or four tenths of the talent, but if you put in a lot of practice, you could probably get really good. <laughs> so my brother, he was always, uh, and that was a side, that was also like a note to self, not to, to ever say to my kids. Um, but my brother, uh, no, he never played professionally. He never, he never did. Did some. He, we, we played on a couple of gigs together here and there. And he did when we played the Waterfront Blues Festival with Dad and a couple of things in town here when we did that record years ago, which is coming up on almost twenty years ago. I guess it'd be eighteen years ago. Um, wow. Yeah, he he played with us, but you know he's been an auto body working in auto body for uh, the last for. 35 years or something he's one of the top people up in up in washington now we're both we're all from california by the way right so i can't i can't imagine what it would have been like for your dad and your brother to go up on stage at the waterfront blues festival i mean this is something you do and you i'm sure you're quite comfortable doing so but for them to get up after not doing it it must be must have been quite an experience for them well, I think my brother was a little bit uh, nervous. Um, you know, I had a lot on my mind that day and everything, but I do remember checking in with dad and saying, hey, how are you feeling? You okay? He's like, Mike, are you, are you nervous? You know, because this is kind of a big deal. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yeah. You have your first gig at the Waterfront Blues Festival. <laughs> and um, he goes, oh, I got, I'm, I'm, I'm like, do you want to, do you want a drink or something? He goes, well, yeah, no. He goes, I, I took a couple of shots of bourbon with my heart pills back at the hotel. <laughs> I think I'm okay. <laughs> so why did you start on the drums as opposed to a guitar like your dad or you like your brother? Well, okay. So what happened was i don't know how i can sort of condense this whole story but when i was in i met these four friends of mine in junior high school and we became fast friends and then we got into high school and my one friend curtis smith had an older brother eric who um was playing guitar and i don't even think he really liked me that much actually um, but he wanted to get a band together so he's trying to convince his brother curtis to play bass and he 
And um, I had one drum that my dad had bought when we were kids that was in the in the closet. And Eric heard about this. And he said, well, you know, my neighbor's selling this drum kit. You should buy this drum kit and then you could be the drummer. And uh, my dad came and checked out the drum kit. And he shook his head and said, no, I don't think so. So I worked all summer and saved up. And I got a, a, I bought my first set that was a CB700 from a place that was called Guitar showcase not center center wasn't around back then right and um yeah it was just sort of something to do but this guy eric we became friends like again i don't think he really he was just his his little brother's friend you know in school i don't that or i was sorry <laughs> um so we started jamming and we were playing this and eric was kind of the catalyst and he kind of directed us we should listen to this. We should listen to that. And somehow he started listening to the Almond Brothers. And from there, we and I really loved the, it was the Live at the Fillmore record. And I really loved that record. And then we started looking at who wrote those songs, like Blind Willie Bechtel and, and T-Bone Walker. And, and um, we, started, we started jumping back and listening to this blues. Well, at the time, this would have been around 19... 80 or 81 and Eric had his pulse had his finger on the pulse of what was happening and he had heard about this band Rod Piazza and the Mighty Flyers that was supposedly this great harmonica um, uh, traditional Chicago style blues band from Southern California who was coming up on tour and that's that was what really up until that point I was just kind of messing around barely with it. But when I saw Rod and the band play that night, we snuck into this bar. Well, I say we snuck in. We got there about two and a half hours early and sat there hoping we wouldn't be noticed until the waitress finally came up about five minutes before showtime. And she said, you know, I hope you guys aren't planning on sticking around here. And I don't know what kind of look we had on our face, but she took pity on us. And she took us, she goes, hold on. She took us back to the, back of the bar and set us up on the bar so we could see up over the top of everybody's heads and she said if any cops come in the front door you head out the back door right here so we got to see rod piazza well it was at the time it was it was uh just the mighty flyers right um, and they started it was the chicago flying saucer band and that record had just come out but they changed to the mighty flyers so I got to meet Willie Schwartz, the drummer that night, and um, he was super nice. I, there was just something about that band and that music that I decided that night that this is what I want to do. And let's say it was a Friday or a Saturday night. I went back to school uh, on Monday morning and I got into my algebra class and I asked the teacher, I said, look, if I sit here for the rest of the semester and I don't bother you, <laughs> but I don't do any more homework and I pass the final. Will you pass me? And she said, I don't know. I guess so. Why? I said, I don't need algebra for what I'm going to do. And she said, well, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to be a drummer. Specifically, I'm going to be a blues drummer. And she looked at me and went like, okay, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> okay. So you were 16, right? I would have been, yeah, I would have been just about, 15 or 16 because i actually nine, i actually 10. graduated high school when i was 17 and it was not because i was brilliant it's because my parents put me in kindergarten a year early i think 
<laughs> okay, so from that moment when you decided this is what you're going to do, was that it? Like, was there ever any doubt that you would do this? You would follow this passion? I only had, okay, so I started, I started directing all of my energy toward that. Um, what did that mean? Well, that meant that I wanted to get out. Of, I had two years left of high school, I guess, at this point. So if I was 16, 17, yeah, right. So I took summer school classes to get all the hard stuff out of the way. And I had already got, I'd already got my own first job. I got that when I was 15, working at a place called the Burger Pit. And I set up the last two years of school so that I only had three classes. And I would get out at 11.15, I would go home and I would practice drums all the way up until when I had to go to work. I was a busboy at this place and I would go and do that. And um, I would just work and work and work and work and work. And I actually got my, my first professional gig when I was 17 in my senior year of high school playing on Monday nights at this blues jam, which is an entire whole story on itself. Did I have any doubts? Yeah, sure. There was, there was one period after I got out of high school that I, for a brief time, I was working with my brother. He was a roofer at the time. And so I was loading and tearing off roofs and then went into actually doing hot tar roofing. And I, I started it was kind of a low point, um, not working with my brother, of course, or anything like that, but it was definitely not headed toward what my dream was. And I think there was a, a brief period where I started questioning playing music. Um, and I went down to my folks in, where they were living in Southern California at the time. And I kind of had a lost uh, couple of, might've been a couple of months, honestly. Um, you remember the scene in The Graduate <laughs> where <laughs> Dustin Hoffman is laying around the pool and drinking beer? That was yeah, yeah. me. Um, I briefly considered joining the service, actually, uh, talking to my dad, who had obviously had been in the Navy and, like I said, pre prior, um, and he was thinking that there probably wouldn't be any conflicts or anything coming up and that it might be a good idea if I... If I did that, maybe I could get in and play music. So when I went back to Northern California, back to Santa Cruz, I actually did go see a recruiting officer and drove down with her to Fort Ord to, <clears throat> to take this test to be possibly go into the, the service for four years. Okay. And you get wow. this, you would get you were, you would get, I can't remember it was 25 or $30,000 toward college fund or something if you did this. But I narrowly escaped that because what happened was I went down there and the guy that gave me my music test was a clarinet player. We went into this little soundproof room and I, I did the test. I read the stuff, you know, playing it for him, performing for him. And he said, yeah, yeah, you did, you did good. He said, you could totally handle this. He says, but he goes, look, can you read vibe music? And then I said, like piano music? And he said, yes. And I said, not really, no. I mean, I took a year of piano when I was a kid. My parents made me do it. Um, he goes, well, look, and you got to remember, we're in a soundproof little room. He goes, if you repeat this, I'll deny it. But <clears throat> if you can't read piano music, vibe music, you're going to end up in the army doing anything but playing music and you're going to end up in you know where be bum egypt right so 
I said, thank you very much. And that was that I, I ended up not joining the army, thankfully. And shortly after that is when I got a gig with a guy named Bird Hale, who um, ended up uh, playing with this guy that was Guitar Gable, that was turned out to be not the real Guitar Gable. Um, he turned out to be the Guitar Fable, as it turned out. But Mark Hummel came to see this guy, and that's how I met Mark Hummel. Mark Hummel came and sat in at this place when I was playing with Bird Hale and this guy Guitar Gable. And that's how I really took started off, like, when Mark hired me on the basis of sitting in for about three songs, he had a tour that was coming up that was six weeks long and his drummer had just quit. So um, that's how I got my first road gig. And that's how my career almost ended again <laughs> because Mark, <laughs> we got out there on the road and Mark found out that I really couldn't play, you know, I mean, I could play all right. But I wasn't used to playing like night after night and remembering all these things. And my tempo was horrible. And he was not, um, he, he was, again, like, uh, not unlike my dad, he was not subtle about it. But I, something in me, I really, really wanted to do this. I wanted to do it so bad that when Mark said, I mean, he was coming down on me pretty hard. And Mark and I, don't get me wrong, I give Mark a lot of credit. He he started not only my career, really, like, for a professional bunch, for, for me as a professional musician, really becoming a professional musician, but lots of other people as well, like Rusty Zinn and my friend Curtis. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of people that have come through Mark's band. So I'm not knocking Mark whatsoever. I'm just telling you what happened. He <clears throat> He came down on me so hard. And I think he saw that finally that I was kind of getting crushed. And he, he came to me, he said, look, I think you can do this, but I want you to practice at least like, well, I can't remember what he said. It was two or three hours a day, whatever he said, I doubled it. So I practice all day long. And then when we go out on the road, I had this practice pad kit that I would bring into the hotel room. And back then we were all rooming together. So most of the time I was with the bass player, Tim Wagar. So he took a lot of long walks. <laughs> <laughs> I drove him nuts. I mean, God bless him. He, I think he, everybody in the band was much older than me or seemed like it. Of course, you know, I was at the time when I was playing with Mark, I was 18, 19, 20. So they were all, I guess, in their early thirties, maybe something like that. But uh, so he appreciated me wanting to get better but yeah, he put up with a lot. So I just knuckled down and I just, uh, everything Mark told me to do, I just, I just doubled it. I just kept going and going. I Cause I did always in the back of my mind, the day that night that I saw Rod Piazza, I knew that's what I wanted to do. But you know, I mean, yeah, you want to know, did I ever have any doubt? Yeah, sure. There was, there was a couple of doubts here and there. Okay. So when Mark said, you're not, you're not cutting it. Did what was the thing did it was automatically i'm going to be able to do this like you at that point you didn't say maybe i should quit you thought i need to work harder i might have thought about it right i mean it, it's kind of rough when you're when you're thinking that you're doing really pretty well and you're trying to get better and better and you're being critiqued constantly you know and but I it think, sounds like but, but i think that it was amplified because of my age 
and you know the older that you get you take criticism and a in a different way than you do when you're you know uh younger i mean or at least i do i have i've changed that's for sure it might have been the best thing for you though i mean whatever oh, God, he said that's why i say i give mark so much credit because he did it, it seems it seems to me that i've kind of been lucky in the sense that i've had people that have taken me under their wing and seen some sort of potential and help me along because i i you know uh i think in reflection i had a lot of self-doubt as far as how good i could be i knew i wanted to do it but i took criticism very very hard you know it, there was a point in my career that uh, if i even when i started getting really pretty good if i flubbed one hit on one song I was def I was almost imploded for the rest of the night. It's not that I couldn't play for the rest of the night, but I thought to, I would take note of that. I would record every single night. I would listen to every night, often after the gig or on the way home from the gig or when I got home from the gig, and I would critique everything that I did, every single hit. So I've been very uh, self-critical in that sense, you know, and I don't know that that's necessarily completely healthy but <laughs> it seems to have worked in some way i guess you know there's been times in my career where i would say that i'm been a pretty darn good drummer you know well also five years after you saw rod piazza yeah you're now auditioning for his band which is not a long time yeah considering i wasn't really even playing drums when i saw them i mean that was <laughs> that was the defining moment when i saw that band so not only did I audition for them when I was 21, it was actually on my 21st birthday. Right. Okay. And this is a band that I used to sit and play to their records and visualize being in the band. Everybody in the band was the same, except I was the drummer. I used to play... <laughs> I didn't just daydream about it, but I would I would fantasize about it while I was playing the drums to their records. Okay. So yeah, it was huge. And the way that that whole thing came about, the, the original drummer, Willie Schwartz, had left and a guy named Ed Mann had come in. And he, so he was, he did the Too Young to Have Fun record um, and one other one, I believe. And I was on tour with Mark Hummel, and we were in Arizona, Flagstaff, I believe, Terry and Zeke's club that used to be there years ago. And the Flyers had just played the night before, and they had a night off. So Junior Watson and Ed Mann uh, came down and sat in. And Ed and I hit it off. And, of course, I was just in awe of Ed because he had got the spot with the Mighty Flyers, which was my dream spot, you know. And he seemed like just an awesome person. And that was about it. And we kept in touch here and there. And then sometime later, um, now this is, you got to remember, so this is when I'm 20 because this is leading up to when I'm 21. Right. Sometime a few months later, Ed called me and he said, uh, are you sitting down? I said, no. He said, well, 
he goes, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving the flyers. And I was like, Oh my God, I can't believe it. Why would you do that? You know, that's such a good band and you're so good in it. And he's like, and he said, yeah, and I want you to audition. And I was like, Oh my God. So he had to really buy, uh, bug Rod to call me because Rod, his ethics said, he wasn't going to try to take somebody out of another band, certainly not an, another one of his contemporaries like Mark Hummel, but Ed would not. I have no idea. Ed would not let up. He said, you got to call this guy. You got to call him. You got to call him. So I was still at this point, I was living in San Francisco and I got the call from Rod and I, we set a date that I had to come down to Southern California and audition. As it turned out, they lived in Riverside. My parents were in Victorville, which is about an hour apart. So I made a, you know, the trip into going to visit my folks. And then um, I was staying with them. And on the day of the audition, I didn't sleep the night before at all. I did not sleep. And I was driving down from Victorville, from the high desert, down to Riverside. I literally pulled over and threw up. Wow. I mean, I was... I was pretty beside myself and I got there and the audition consisted of just Miss Honey and Rod at their place in their little studio out back of their house. Um, and I did pretty, pretty good. <laughs> I gotta say, one of the things was, you know, Rod is obviously a master of playing all the little Walter stuff. And so they did a song that was one of the little Walter songs called the rocker. And, um, I had written out the entire drum part that Fred Bilo had played, and I showed up with this. So, did you know you were going to rehearse with that song, or audition I with did that song? not know, but I had a, I had a, I had an idea that we might. It seemed like one of the criteria would be that whoever was going to take that spot would need to know how to play behind somebody that played Little Walter as good as that they did, as well as many different other styles of blues, like jimmy reed and whatnot and i remember playing uh, a couple of songs with jimmy reed and uh i think one of the clinchers uh or that cinched it for me was i and i can't even remember the name of the song now but it was one of rod's instrumentals and we played it we got three he goes yeah you did pretty good but you missed that one part and i said well i'm sorry mr piazza like i'm I hate to correct you, but actually you left a whole section out. And he was like, what? I said, well, you did it this way when you did it on the record live. Oh, excuse me, when you did it on the record. And then the last time you came through town when I recorded you, you had done that section and you added this other part, which you did not do. But this time when you just played it, you had left out the whole section. And, and honey, he's like, no. And honey's like, you know, I think he's right. And they put the record on and I was right. <laughs> So uh, I, I felt pretty good about it, um, but I went back up to Northern California, back to my little, little, it wasn't even an apartment, it was just a room in San Francisco that I was renting, and I waited around, and I remember Rod left this message. He called back a few days later, and he said, hey, babe, Rod Piazza, yeah, you know, we've been thinking about it, and I think you should just save your money save it for the move down here <laughs> because I'm sorry, I left out a key piece of the story. I was supposed to come back down and, and, and audition with oh, okay, uh, okay. Bill Stuvey and junior Watson, because it was just the two of them. When I first went down, I was supposed to come back again. He said, just save your money and save it for the move down. 
So yeah, at 21, I had realized my life's dream, which was kind of an amazing thing to happen. You know, um, looking back on it, I, um, and I've talked with Rod and Honey about this. And I think Rod's actually been a little bit vocal about this, not vocal, but I mean, he's, he's said it in passing here and there that, you know, I thought it was just the best job the gig in the world that I could possibly get. And then the fact that I got it was amazing. I was still very, very nervous. And, you know, probably the self doubt that you're talking about. Um, I think in, in my career, it's been more about what I can and can't do, but not necessarily what it is that I wanted to do, which is to be in music and play drums. So um, yeah, here's my side note about that, getting that gig is I don't think, cause that was 1986. I don't think Rod had a lot of choices. <laughs> I mean, to me, it'd be like, well, who wouldn't want this gig? You know, who wouldn't want to play with the best blues band in, in the world, as far as I'm concerned and play all this traditional blues and everything. But at 1986, you have to think about what was going on in music at the time. How many drummers would actually want to do that? And for, for whatever reason, I have always gravitated toward, um, especially in my early years, towards the harmonica and the Chicago style blues. And yeah, there was, you know, his longtime buddy and first drummer in his band, Richard Innes, lived just down the street from him, just like a couple of miles away, maybe. In fact, when I showed up for the audition, Rod had just had his driveway done. And I said, oh, you got some, you got some mud pour here today. You know, and he goes, yeah, Richard Ennis just came over and poured my driveway. I was like, Richard Ennis does concrete? <laughs> he poured your driveway? And I was thinking, well, he's got to get the gig. Why wouldn't he get the gig? Well, you know, Richard didn't want to do that anymore at the time. You know, he had his gig playing doing concrete. Right. If we, if we go back to you touring with Mark Hummel. Oh, absolutely. Just, yeah. just the idea of being on the road. What was that like for you? Um, not knowing, I, I, it sounds like that was your first real major road experience, but what was living on the road like for you? Well, it, it was, <laughs> I was very naive. We went on the first tour leaving out of Cal, uh, you know, out of the Bay Area and when we, I can't remember what the first place that we went to, but it was out of state. And it was, I, I'm not making this up. I was, oh my God, there's a University Avenue in this town. <laughs> there's a Main Street here. We have a Main Street where I live. I mean, just, I don't know if that pretty much sums it up for me. <laughs> At what point did, did the road feel like home to you oh well i felt i felt pretty comfortable i've always been kind of a workhorse so the long drives and all that stuff and everything at the time did not bother me um but um yeah uh i i i loved it i mean the whole thing about it was you're going to do something every night that you love to do. You're getting paid to do it. And then, you know, I mean, there was tumultuous times as well. And for, like I said, at the, with Mark, you know, I was self-doubting and having to work on this and everything, but, but I was determined and I was, and I had a, I had a place to, to pra I could even practice in the van 
for a limited amount of time without driving everybody nuts. But I was pretty happy as far as doing what, you know, doing what I wanted to do. And I didn't have any problem with sleeping in motels and sharing rooms. And that never got to me. I didn't have a family at home. So there was nothing like that pulling me back, you know, wanting to be back home. Um, I had girlfriends here and there, you know, um, but if something came up and it seemed like that uh, it was either going to be music or them, it was always going to be music. And I got, just got to the point where I just make that clear up front. You know, I mean, this, this is always going to be my number one thing. So if we're going into this, you should just know, like, don't ever ask me to not do this because I'm never not going to do it. So if you have a problem with me being gone or whatever, this is not going to work. I mean, I just had no doubt about those things at the time. And the other thing that happened quite a bit with Mark that uh, he allowed me to, um, or it allowed me a place to play with some of these great, great players because we were also backing people up. We were playing with Charlie Musselwhite and Luther Tucker and Jimmy McCracklin. And I, I mean, at one point I was actually backing up and playing for several nights, um, with Mark, we were playing backing up Brownie McGee, you know, I mean, who gets to do that when you're like 19 or 20 years old. And that was really something. Um, I remember Brownie, uh, when we did this one short tour with him, um, uh, I ended up uh, wanting to get one of his records that was just out and he, he sold it to me. I think he sold it to me at a discount, but anyway, I got to play with a lot of people thanks to Mark as well. And, and that was something that was just invaluable. Okay. So at the age of 21, you've now reached your dream of playing with the band that you wanted to always play with. So what happens then? Like it, what happens when you reach a dream so quickly? Yeah. I, maybe it didn't seem quickly to you, but was it what you thought it would be? And, and then... No, it wasn't. Um, I got in the band. Well, the, it, it, it was and it wasn't. Okay, here's the thing about if you're going to be really one-pointed and you're going to have a goal. And some of this you just can't figure out until you have hindsight. But all that fantasizing and dreaming about being in the band but and everybody was the same except that i was the drummer i i and all the music i completely focused on that i never once gave any thought of what it was going to be like to be in the band and what those people were like or how they got along right so yeah i'm 21 i realized my dream i make the move i go down to southern california and I start playing and I'm nervous, you know, I'm not lying. I'm, I'm nervous, uh, but I, but I've continued to, I'm, I'm ready for it. You know, I'm thinking I can do this, but, <clears throat> but these guys have all been together since the late seventies or early seventies. Maybe they've been, you know, Rod and honey and Alec, or excuse me, and, and junior Watson and, and Bill, They've been playing together for years. So there's all these band politics that I don't even know about, you know? And so, so I moved down. The first place that I'm living is, is in Belmont shore and near long beach there. And Bill Stubbe, the bass player lives in, in long beach and, and junior Watson lives in long beach. 
and um, we played out in Riverside, which is about an hour away if there's no traffic. Ha ha. Um, and we played out there a lot. So, of course, it's like, well, you know, when when Junior Watson said, you know, do you want to ride out this weekend to the gig and back? I'm like, of course I want to ride with Junior Watson. Like, of course I do, you know. And and he picked me up and and we left. And I'm all the time kind of thinking, why isn't Bill here? Because they only live about four blocks from each other. <laughs> and we got up there by the end of the weekend. I realized why they didn't ride together. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know how much I want to put out there on radio or podcast or however much is it, but let's just say junior was not super happy at the time. And he had no problem telling me about all the injustices and everything that were going on. So I stopped riding with him pretty quickly. And then, uh, then I did try riding with bill and within just a couple of few months i was driving by myself <laughs> and i got i got down there and i thought i don't know what is going on with these guys like i just changed my whole life i've dreamt about this for years i've moved down here i've changed you know everything and this band is going to break up they're going to be done here i they've got to be but no and really in hindsight for anybody out there who's been in a band, there's just stuff that happens. And people, you know, you have to know that most of the time when you walk out of the room, you're going to get talked about in one way or another. <laughs> it's just kind of what happens. And there's there's either one person or a couple of people that, I mean, it's just band politics. It's just all it was. And it was no different than any other band that I've ever been in. It's again, at my age, it seemed like it was probably uh, all amplified. And, and that was really my first, you know, I had, I had experienced a little bit of that with the, with the Mark Hummel band, you know, um, but it just seemed so much bigger when I moved down there to, to be in Rod's band. And um, yeah, so it, it was some of what I had hoped for and, and a lot of it that I, that I did not expect, you know, and I, and I had to start dealing with that. And, you know, also at the time, yeah, I got the gig when I was 21. I don't think I was 100% ready for that. And again, I don't think Rod had a whole lot of choices. And he might have even thought, well, maybe this guy will be good until we find somebody else. But I just, I didn't let up. I started, I kept practicing over and over and over again. And I all the techniques that I had done prior to this, where I recorded every single night, and I listened to it back, and I would critique myself and see what I could do better. So it took about a year or two for me to really settle in, you know, until wow. so I was about, I mean, for me, where I, where I was able to just go to the gigs and, and I knew I started gaining some confidence where I was like, I, I know what I'm doing here now, you know, so that would put me at what, 22, 23 years old or so. And then I kind of got into this lull where it's like, well, now what? That's that's when I really realized it was like, well, shoot, like this was my whole life's dream. And essentially I got this like two years ago. Here I am to now. What do I do? What do I do? <laughs> like, I, I, you know, it, it, I, I can play everything that I'm supposed to be playing in this band and and um, 
there's no sense of me just, you know, beating a dead horse and like running these songs over and over and over again. I, I needed to do something different. And that's when I uh, uh, ended up finding my second drum teacher, the first being Forrest Elledge, who was in the Bay Area, one of the top teachers in the Bay Area, and the second one being Murray Spivak, who was in Los Angeles. And I met him via Edman, who was the one who was playing in the in the flyers prior to me. He uh, he told me that he had been taking some lessons from from uh, Murray Spivak, and I decided that well, if I'm kind of settled in in this band, that I need to keep moving forward somehow. So I need to do something other than um, just this, where I need to improve myself in my playing. And so that's what the next step was for me. Okay, so what's it like to to say, okay, I'm going to go back and and not relearn the drums, but to kind of work with a new drummer and try to work on your technique? Right. Well, for any of the drummers that are out there, I started out uh, playing what's called match grip. So you're holding the sticks the exact same way. All of my heroes, um, you know, with the palms down, all of my heroes uh, were drummers that played traditional grip, which was more of like the marching band type thing where the left hand is the palm is up. And so I decided when I got in with Murray um, and I didn't just, by the way, I didn't just call up Murray and go, Hey, I want to take drum lessons for you from you. Murray had a waiting list. It took me months. I think, I think I might've waited half a year to even be able to get in and do my first lesson with him. And uh, Murray had taught, uh, he was sort of the, the hand technician guru of the West Coast. He was a uh, guy that worked in films um, as a sound effects and recording engineer. Um, he moved out to California in 1926 when movies were just starting in with, with actual sound. He was a vaudeville drummer, and so they were looking for people that knew how to, back then it was called, when you worked in vaudeville, it was called cutting an act. So you literally had all the bells and whistles to accompany the people that were on stage. So these were people that the movies, as they were implementing sound, they were looking for people that could come up with ideas for sound effects, because there weren't any, there were no sound effects. But Murray was also a drummer, I'll just, I got to finish up on Murray real quick as far as his, that part of it. His first big picture was the original King Kong. That's wow. the, the sound of the monkey uh, roaring is, is three different animals. Two of them recorded in reverse or played in reverse that the sound of him beating on his chest is Murray on his assistant's back with timpani mallets. <laughs> okay. And he later, he went on to do, uh, around the world in 80 days and my fair later lady hello dolly is when he oh. won his first first academy award for sound um up until then the department had just got it but he was responsible for eight other academy awards until he finally got his old own he got the golden globe award he had every award you could think of from the movie industry in his apartment in park la brea in los angeles but through this whole time he would come home and he would even he teach drum lessons so he taught joe morello uh chuck uh, uh silverman um the wackerman boys 
um god uh well his big one he was teaching louis belsom how to play drums in 1942 if that means anything yeah yeah so this guy is no lightweight all right so i went in and i decided that i told him um i want to learn how to play traditional grip and so that's where we started off and he was a pretty intimidating guy for such a slight person you know i mean when i met murray he was 88 but he just said you know i'm gonna tell you right off the bat after the first couple of lessons if you don't have the talent to do this i'm not going to teach you because it's just going to be a waste of my time and a waste of your money and thankfully he never said that to me so and he kind of befriended me i mean he he's the whole idea was he had about 50 or 52 lessons to get through his program and you're supposed to come every two weeks and he asked me right off the bat he said if you can't come every two weeks i then we're gonna have to hold off on this because i don't want to I don't want to have somebody who's just going to start and then stop and start and stop. And I'm in Rod Piazza's band at the time. We're a touring band. So I just flat out lied and said, <laughs> oh, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm no problem. And I was just going to hope for the best because I, I had already waited months to get in with this guy. And something told me that I really needed to take lessons from him. So we started in and let's say if it was in the winter time when we were touring last it went okay but every every time a tour would come up and i was just about to call and tell murray that i had to cancel he would call me first every time i'm not feeling good jimmy i think you're just gonna have to come next week you know come to you are gonna hold off on this one and you come in a couple of more weeks i'll let you know you know and so I would luck out and I would get an extra two weeks to work on that lesson that I had because he went every two weeks. So now I had a month to do it. And sometimes he would cancel again. So I was actually with Murray for a little over three years, not because I was a slow learner, but because he was sick a lot. He was, you know, I mean, then he turned, I mean, when he died, he was going to be, he was just about to turn 92. So I knew him for just about almost four years. And during that time, he sort of befriended me. I would go over and I would actually stay at his apartment there in Park La Brea, even though I only lived a couple of few miles away uh, because he needed to get up in the morning and go to the farmer's market. And I would go shopping with him and um, we watch movies together. And, uh, you know, he was, uh, I got all, all kinds of great stories and stuff him from him you know uh from the move music stuff and movie stories um but all the time i'm working on my technique you know i'm working but how how easy is that to change your playing style well it's okay so what happened to learning the the uh the uh traditional grip my left hand was actually very weak but it didn't have any bad habits. So I didn't change as soon as when I started taking lessons for from him, it took several months, maybe even the first year before I even started to implement any of it on stage. I would only work on it at home. I would never work on it on stage because 
because I was learning this whole new motion and it was a, completely foreign to me. And when I did finally start to implement it, what I would do is I would do it like on a slow blues, ding, 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 bat, bat, the bat being my left hand. Right. So something really, really easy. And then I would, but slowly, but surely I kept working and working and working on my left hand. I kept working and working on it. And I'd, then I'd be able to go da 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 So any of the double shuffles that I would do, um, I would start using that. And then it, after a while, by about the second year, my left hand surpassed my right hand and surpassed what my left hand was prior to that. And that's if I'm not thinking I'm all that in a bag of chips, but for anybody who knows my playing or has followed it, one of the things is my left hand that's been commented on several times over the years and that I've got a pretty good left hand. And that's all because of Murray. And it's, uh, I mean, I got to take credit too. I put a lot of work into it, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, you got to just be willing to go, yeah, I'm going to, I want to do this. And it was all for the sake of, learning something different and also a feeling there's a feeling that i get when i'm playing traditional grip that i don't have when i'm playing match grip and part of that is because you grow up and you're looking at these pictures and you know back when i was growing up i mean there was no youtuber of course or anything like that but you see these we used to buy these vhs tapes of all the big bands and everything and all my heroes back then gene krupa and buddy rich and everybody blue belsom everybody they all played traditional grip and fred Bilo and billy stepney and you know um i'm assuming elgin evans i mean all the blues players they all played traditional grip too and here i am playing blues and doing something that's rather traditional and i figure well there's got to be something to that you know and it just also gave me a i was very focused and had a very regimented uh practice schedule i would wake up in the morning when i was really going full bore and my feet would hit the ground and i would make myself practice for a half hour on my pad before i let myself go to the bathroom and there was a short time for a couple of years that i had tried to save some move money and i had moved in with my folks up in the high desert and my dad i was staying in one of the rooms there and I was practicing and he came to me at one point. He said, you know, you're not practicing all day long. You say you're practicing all day long, but you're, you're not really goes, you know, I hear the phone ring and you just stop and pick up the phone and you, you talk for half hour, 45 minutes. Sometimes you, you're not practicing. So I thought, Hmm, well, I'll show that son of a bitch. And I, so I got a stopwatch. And what I did was this, this, if the, if the phone rang, I stopped the stopwatch. If I went and got a snack, the stopwatch stopped. If I used the bathroom, it stopped. And he was right. I mean, that's the thing. It's like you you start, you think that you just practiced for six or seven hours, but if you're goofing off and doing a bunch of other stuff and you're answering the phone or you're doing whatever, uh, yeah, the clock's not running. You're not practicing during that time. So you think you're practicing six, seven hours and maybe you got like three or so. So I, I launched into, well, I'm going to get eight full hours of practice every day, which takes about 12 hours. Wow. So, and, and then maybe I might give myself a break if I had a gig that night, the gig didn't count as practice by the way, but maybe I'd give myself a break 
And I would only practice six hours that day if I had a gig that night. And I would do all of my stuff that I had to do with Murray. And then I had different things that I would do on the drum kit. And then I started getting into the Louis Bell, some double kick stuff. And so I practiced ostinatos on the, on the double kick while I was playing, practicing other things on top of the kit. And then I'd have a free time where I would just use for being creative. That was sort of like play time, but was still practice and maybe playing to something new or something different and something other than blues. And I was very regimented about it. I, you know, and uh, it's a good thing that he actually said something and my playing progressed. I got, I mean, at one point in my twenties, that's, that's the most technically and proficient I've ever been in my life. You know, I, uh, sadly, I don't know if I'll ever get back to that point again but I feel like I'm a much more musical drummer in my older age at this point. But so, yeah, it's a big commitment. Another yeah. long answer to a very short question. But this, obviously that commitment is probably the reason why you've been nominated for drummer of the year so many times by the blues music awards or the fact that you're in the hall of fame for the cascade blues society. I mean, it's that dedication that you you've displayed. Yeah. And I mean, I wanted to say something about that, too, because uh, it's funny, you know, I, I did not start out playing music to try to win some sort of an award. It's not anything that's really, you know, for me in the in the forefront of why you're playing music, you're playing music because you love it. And um, it's just something that, you know, you got to do. Um, but then what happens is, uh, you know, or at least for me is, you know, years later, you end up getting nominated and, you know, the first time I was nominated, um, I didn't even know it had happened. It was back when there was still the WC Handy Awards. And I was in Memphis and I got a call from Bob Harding. He used to own, uh, was the general manager over at BB King's Club. And then he had his own place called the Black Diamond. And uh, he said, you're going to go to the Handy Awards. And I said, I, I don't know why. And he said, well, because you're nominated, you goofball. So I... Uh, Anyway, you know, but the nominees that year, it was uh, Willie Big Eye Smith and Ted Harvey, I think, and Sam Lay and me. And I mean, here's like these three guys that I grew up listening to and were heroes of mine. So it was very surreal. And I, you know, as time went by, um, you get nominated over and over and over and over and over again. And at this point, I mean, again, not to toot my own horn or anything, but I, if nothing else, I actually do hold the record for the most nominations in the instrumental category for drums. I, it's, I, I'm at 20 times now. Wow. So, uh, and I won, yeah, I won once back in 2015 and that was a great, great moment. But uh, I don't know. I think there's something to be said uh, uh, for actually, having the most nominations <laughs> i don't know um yeah but as far as the practicing and the and all that stuff i'm sure that dedication didn't hurt <laughs> <laughs> okay so at still a young age in, in in your 20s you're playing now you've spent a few years with the dream band um and then you question what am i doing and then you take lessons where does it go from there? You, you wind up joining the Fabulous Thunderbirds at one point. Well, we're kind of, yeah, we're kind of jumping ahead. I mean, I can't go. I was with Rod from for 10 years. Right. 10 years. Uh, and, and Rod is at a level that's pretty high in, in the world of the blues. 
Yeah, it's 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 really it's really high. And to uh, like I said, uh, backtracking, I don't know that Rod that I was really absolutely his dream drummer when I joined, but it, it, it he's also mentioned that you know that I ended up proving him wrong by by sticking with it and and becoming the drummer that I was um, during that course. And and it was. Uh, you know, I learned a lot from Rod. I learned a lot. That band, Junior Watson was in the band for a year and a half, and then he left to join Canned Heat, and then we had Alex Schultz came in on guitar. So then that was the the first change that there was while I was in the band. And the band with Alex and Bill and Honey and Rod and myself, I don't think I've ever been in a band since before since that had that much dynamics we had a range of dynamics that was just uh, it was it was unbelievable and um that's something that i learned from from rod i also learned from rod i mean other things that didn't have it necessarily anything to do with music that was you know, he used to say to me, you know, you see everything, Jimmy, it's like really just black and white. He says there's shades of gray. And it wasn't just about music. You know, there was other things, band politics that were going on at the time and and whatnot. But, um, you know, the, the other thing is with Rod is I got to play with all kinds of incredible players. Uh, Johnny Dyer was always coming down to city. Larry Arkansas Davis lived not too far away and, uh, he would come and, and sit in at uh, um, Carlos O'Brien's in Riverside. And, uh, I mean, the list of people that I got to play with uh, because of Rod and because of Mark and Paul Durkett and Bert Ale, uh, it, it's it's been pretty amazing. Uh, they're just, you know, I ended up playing with the Myers Brothers, Dave and, and Lewis Myers and uh, with Hummel, we were also playing with uh, uh, Lowell Folsom. I mean, I got to play with with a lot of the original heavyweight guys. And um, yeah, uh, I just wanted to mention that because, you know, Paul Durquette, the guy that gave me my Monday night gig back at Mountain Charlie's in Los Gatos, took the first chance on me bird Hale gave me the chance to play with him and a bunch of other people around town namely that one guy uh the guitar gable that is why i met mark hummel mark hummel really was like going to high school where he was he was hard on me but he also gave me a chance to develop my skills and rod was like going to college and uh or to you know yeah university and um they all along the way these people kind of took chances on me i think and maybe out of necessity some on their part and maybe partially that they saw something that was you know but they were always in the end very encouraging and and helped me so i just want to throw that in there but yeah, I the I ended up so so my two favorite bands in high school were Rod Piazza and the Mighty Flyers and then the Fabulous Thunderbirds. And the Fabulous Thunderbirds, after I got out of school, right about the time that I was joining Rod or just before they had the hit Tough Enough, but it was on the radio. So they sort of went to a whole new level there. And I was in Santa Cruz 
either visiting or playing with Rod. I can't remember. I think I was playing with Rod at Moe's Alley or something. And uh, Rusty Zinn actually came in. He told me, hey, because Rusty had been playing with Kim Wilson in the Kim Wilson Blues Band. Said, you know, the T-Birds, Kim's probably, he's, it's looking like Fran Costina is going to leave and they're looking for a new drummer. Would you be interested? And I said, yeah, but there was a whole caveat to it because my best friend, Mark Carino, who had been in the Mark Hummel band after I left, had also been in the Fabulous Thunderbirds and unfortunately had gotten fired because of Fran Christina. It's a very long sorted story, but I don't know what my hesitation was or how Rusty read it or whatever. He went back to Kim Wilson and said, no, Bot's not interested. <laughs> well, at the time, Kid Ramos was the guitar player. And Kid and I knew each other as well as Willie J from back in the Southern California days with Rod Piazza and the James Harmon band. Kid called me, which was no easy deal back then because I had already left Southern California and was living in my van up in Northern California and commuting. And he got a hold of me somehow and he said, Hey, Rusty came back and said, You're not interested in joining the T Birds. That doesn't sound right. Give me a call. And I called him and I said, Kid, no, 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 no. I, he misunderstood me. I am absolutely interested in doing this, but I need to check this with my buddy Mark because, you know, Mark and I have been friends since the seventh grade. And here he was in the band. He got fired. You know, he said, Oh, I totally understand that. So I got the audition and I talked, actually, I talked to Kim first. And Kim called me. And we were talking about this and that, and he was running down the whole business. And he was saying, you know, we're on a bus and we do this and that. And I just stopped him and I said, look, Kim, I really respect you and I have loved your band forever, you know. Um, those first two records were like right up there with anything that I've ever listened to and how I was learning blues just right along with the flyers and the stuff that I was listening to that was the the, the original recordings of everything that we all love from back in the fifties and sixties, but we don't know each other and we've never played together. Don't you think we ought to get together and play first before we decide anything about me, even considering coming in? He said, you know, you're right. So I made the drive all the way from North here, all the way back down to Southern California to go do this audition at kid Ramos's house. And I show up after driving all day or from early in the morning, get there in the afternoon. And <laughs> they're just finishing having an audition with Stephen Hodges. Now, Stephen was the drummer in the James Harmon band that Kid and Willie were with James Harmon and uh, Hollywood Fats for years. And right. here comes Steve Hodges, comes walking out of Kid Ramos's house with his drums. And I was like, ah, shit. <laughs> well, that's that. Steve is going to get this. And, th and then they go, they say, uh, hey, oh, yeah, Jimmy, uh, just go ahead and bring your drums in. You know, we've been here for a bit. We're really hungry. We're going to go get something to eat. You can just set up your drums. You know, do you want us to bring you back a taco or something? And I was like, no, I'm good. Thanks. That's all right. And so they all come back, and they're going to hang out. And, of course, in my mind, they're probably going to hang out and figure how Steven's going to come in. You know, we got to go back and do this thing with Bot real quick or whatever and get rid of him. <laughs> And, but they came back and we did the audition and I knew all the stuff that they had been playing, of course, and the things that I wasn't familiar with, I had already uh, started working on. So I think we kind of left it at that. I felt like I had at this point, you know, now I'm 31. So I'm feeling, you know, 
I did as good as I could do. I was not unprepared by any means. And, but I just figured, yeah, Steven's probably going to get it. Well, Kim ended up calling me a few days later on Valentine's Day. I always seem to have these dates that, in my life that show up on certain days that are kind of either holidays or birthdays. And he said, hey, you, you got the gig. If you want the gig, you can start this this coming month, you know, in March. So I will say this. I knew Kid and Willie a little bit. I mean, we, I knew them more than just a little, but we'd never been in a band together. I didn't really know Gene Taylor. Um, you know, of course I later heard from Gene when Kim was thinking about, Hey, what do you think about this bot guy? He's Gene was like, I don't know that much about him, Kim, but he played with, he's been playing with Rod for 10 years. And that says something if Rod's had him for 10 years, you know, and Gene and I became fast friends. But uh, what I did differently this time was when I projected all the time leading up to the audition and possibly getting this gig was not only being in another band that I had dreamt of being in, but getting along with everybody in the band and everyone getting along in the band and interact. I put that into my mind's eye so that I was putting that out there. I wasn't going to make the same mistake again. You know, um, I wanted to put it out there that not only would I possibly get the gig, but everything would be smooth as a band. And it was. And the first couple of years in the T-Birds is one of the most exciting and fun times that I've ever had. You know, I mean, Willie, I got nothing bad to say about anybody in that band. I mean, we and it was a good band. That's not to toot our own horn, but next to the original t-bird band which i saw and blew up my mom's car by the way to get to the show in san francisco blew the head gasket and did not give up to get to the show we ended up hitchhiking taking a train taking bart taking a bus and walking the last two miles to go see the thunderbirds when the, the original band we were the closest thing. That band was the, the closest thing to the original band in, in, the, that I, I would consider, you know, and I don't, I don't mean to be spouting off or anything. I'm proud of it because we were all on the same page and everybody loved those records. Well, two things come to mind. One is the fact that, if I'm not mistaken, some of those band members from that band is now in your current band. Yes. Yeah. Willie. Right. Yeah. Uh, Will, so Willie and Willie and kid. Yeah. So, and that's like many years that, of, I guess, playing together that you've had this relationship with them. The other thing that comes to mind and, and you've mentioned this a few times is how difficult it is for a band to stay together. Obviously not the first person to mention this. And <laughs> this is a problem that a lot of bands have. Um, but when I look at your career, you seem to have, you seem to be in a lot of bands, you know, and, and it seems like it's a band thing, like the Manish Boys, like the Proven Ones, like the Thunderbirds, as opposed to you being a side person. And I, I, I'm sure you do side person gigs, but you seem to have this thing about being in bands. Am I correct in assuming that? You are correct. I mean, all along the way, when I was with Rod and, the, you know, and even when I was with Mark, um, I was always doing side gigs, but, but that was not my band. I was right. always in a band and then I would do other stuff, 
you know, if we weren't working, I would be playing with other people. People would ask me and I'd say, sure. Um, but they weren't my band. And yeah, I've, I've still, I'm 55 now this year. And I gotta say, um, I still have a little bit of that. Maybe it's being naive. I don't know. Or maybe it's, I, I don't even know what to call it, but there's still a bit of, uh, like now with the proven ones, um, an all for one and one for all that you're in a band together. There's something about that, that you're right. I've never really thought about that, Mako, that there's something inherent in me that wants to be part of a group and have a common goal and doing something that's together. And I have found, you know, um, of course, let me just say this with Mark's band, it was Mark's band. Yeah. Yeah. I was in sure. the band and I was part of the band. And when I was in Rod's band, it was a band. And he even said, I remember the, the day the audition, he goes, you know, I like to think that everybody has a say in this band, but somebody's got to make the final decisions. And that person is me. So right. you just got to know that coming into it. And I'm of course with Kim, it's Kim's band. <laughs> There's no question yeah. about that. The Manish boys, Randy Chorkoff was in charge of that, you know, I mean, we had a lot of say within that band as well and everything. Um, the Proven Ones um, is a democracy and everybody, um, for better or worse, agrees on it or we don't do it or, or enough of us agree on it. Uh, thankfully, we haven't had any real major conflict that we didn't all think after talking about something, this is either a good idea or this is not a good idea. You know, um, it's also a testament to why it's so hard to get anything done in a democratic. <laughs> well, I can imagine it would be difficult. because there's only five of us and it's tough to, uh, I mean, we don't fight or anything, knock on wood, uh, but it's, you know, everybody's got their ideas and, 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 and to try to get an okay on everything, you know, like if we were doing an interview with the guys today and we were going to set this up, you know, um, we'd all, it would, it would take a lot longer than just a couple of texts back and forth <laughs> saying like, what about this time here? Uh, no, yeah. I don't know. Maybe I, you know, that's not really good. Ah, I got this other thing, you know, it would probably be about two weeks out before we could actually get everybody together to do it. But you're but right. How do, you, how do you come up with that band thing, though? I mean, it's also not only the fact that you have five people, but it's also geographically far apart. Yeah, that part of it is is a is a bummer, especially, um, you know, I mean, we were really set to go this year. We, mm -hmm. we were... Uh, I mean, in a nutshell, what had happened with the Proven Ones is it was going to be sort of an offshoot of the Manish Boys. And originally, when we started recording the first record, Wild Again, um, Sugar Ray Rayford was on board to be the singer. And everybody came out to my place here to the studio in Portland. And we started throwing down some stuff, just thinking that maybe we'd just kind of get going on a recording um sugar got really really busy and um you know his career was taking off and and so um that's when anthony Jirasi and when i knew anthony from well i obviously i knew of him quite a bit but he had also it through the manish boys when randy chorkoff was alive he had done uh i think the first time i met him was when we played in lebanon in beirut um that uh 
I was, I actually played with him and he told us about this guy, Brian Templeton, who he thought would be a great ad, you know, to the band. And, um, I didn't really, you know, of course I, I knew who Brian was and I had heard of the radio Kings and all that, but I, I didn't really know much about Brian. And then he, we had a couple of people that did some auditions via, you know, the internet, as far as sending us tapes. And I heard Brian and I was like, Oh my God, like that is the guy, this is it. Like we, and everybody else was like, yeah, kid and Willie said, this is it. So Brian came out here to Portland, flew out, never even met him in person that I know of. And he just nailed everything. And we had an instant connection. He stayed here at the house it was just like having somebody that you've known for years being in, you know, there was, there was no, there was just good feelings all the way around. And I, I can't say uh, enough about any of the guys, you know, they're all great guys. Um, so I'm digressing probably again. No, but so, so what happens next because of the pandemic, everything's kind of put on hold. First of all, we did the wild again record. Right. which did really, really well. And, and you got to remember, well, our first actual gig with Brian was on the main stage on 4th of July at 5 o'clock p.m., right, at Waterfront Blues Festival in front of 25,000 people. That was our first gig. And so that started, it's, it's, that's what started making noise right off the bat. And the record started doing really pretty well. And then we were, we were playing in Europe. Mike Zito was there and it, this is like the following year. And Mike, Mike had started up this label with uh, Guy Hale, Gulf Coast Records. Right. And Albert Castillo was there. And we went on and we hadn't played in quite some time because this festival is uh, in uh, very end of April, beginning of May. So it was right before the Blues Music Awards because the BMAs are in May, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we played, I honestly, I thought we, I, I thought I kind of sucked that night. I thought the, <laughs> I thought the band, I, I was just like, we had done some stuff the year before and we just hadn't, we had no time to rehearse when we got over there to play. We came off and Mike Zito was just like, oh my God, that is a band. I'm like, seriously? And he's like, Jimmy, like that is a band, you know? And Mike and I had been become pretty good friends from being thrown into this thing called the Blues Giants that was the brainchild of a guy named Patrick Kaiser over in, in Switzerland. And um, anyway, Mike, uh, he just loved it. And he contacted me almost immediately after. And he's like, you know, I'm doing this label thing and we've been just doing small artists to, to start. He's like, but if you guys would consider it, like we really would like to do a record with you guys. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and let me talk to the guys, of course, first. And it was like, yeah, everybody was like, holy God. Because we were trying to, at that point, we were trying to figure out, well, how are we going to do this next record? We did the first record all on our own dime. And, of course, I recorded it and mixed it. And and I have a small label, so I had put it out on my label and everything. And I I had put out into the into the universe or whatever you want to call it. I told the guys to go, I don't care what the next deal that we do, like next record is, but I don't want to put it out. 
I don't want to be the record label on the next record. I don't care how bad the deal is. Like, I just want, I don't want to do that again. I forgot. I had been so long since I put anything out as a record label. I forgot how much work it was, you know, and, <laughs> right. and I do not find that work really enjoyable personally. Um, and so here comes Mike Zito and sees us play on what I thought was kind of a crappy night, but he must have again seen something. I mean, he he's just and that's he and that singer. God, that guy is a singer. And um, yeah, so that's how we got the Gulf Coast Records uh, deal. And I can't say enough good things about Gulf Coast. They're actually the only label I've been involved with that is truly for the artist. Like they want the artist to make money. It's, it's amazing. Um, and that's how we ended up doing the, the, the second, second record. And we went down. Um, it was my idea to do it somewhere other than here because I did not want to be the engineer and the drummer on the next record. I was happy to mix it. I was happy to do that. But when you're trying to um, vacillate between being playing in the band and being the recording engineer something almost always gets goes by that you don't know about until everybody's gone home and you end up trying to fix or whatever and it's just really hard to wear the two hats and go back and forth so mike suggested that we go down to this place called uh dockside recording uh studio in uh, maurice louisiana and that's where we that's where we went down we had david farrell great great engineer Turns out David and I had worked on a record with Rod together so long ago that we forgot we'd both worked together on it. Wow. He was the engineer on that. He, David's just a world-class engineer. He's been around for years and years and years and um, done, you know, thousands of projects. And so he was the, he was the main engineer. I, as it turned out, I did end up engineering some of the record while I was down there because the days were just so long when it got into overdubs and whatnot, David needed a break. So I, I took over and did some of that down there. Actually, the band said, we want Jimmy to mix this record. So we might talk to David and he's no, no problem, man. Whatever you wanted, any help I can be, no problem. And so I, uh, and here's somebody who's won like three Grammys, <laughs> you know, or four, I don't know. But we had a real specific idea of what we wanted for the sound of the record and what direction we wanted to go sonically and whatnot. And um, the guys just felt like I, it would be good if I did it. And I think that we did, you know, really, really well. The, the album's called uh, You Ain't Done. It's on Gulf Coast Records. It went to number one on the Billboard charts in April, the week that it came out. And I'm... Um, at the point in my engineering skills that I had a clear idea of what I wanted to do. And I already have an idea of what I'd want to do on the next record at this point, you know, um, which is, you know, all along this way, I've been doing recording. That's, I've not just been a drummer, but for almost the last 20 years, I've been doing recordings as well. So, and now I have a full money pit studio, <laughs> not in the garage. It's a separate building, dedicated building, you know, that I am constantly recording people and doing stuff out here and people send me projects from all over, you know, around the world or whatever. And either I'm doing something where I'm mixing something or I'm drumming on or having other people record on and, you know, got 
musicians here in town that are doing stuff where they're doing stuff for commercials or whatever and they come in and they somebody needs a harmonica part and then or, or whatever it is so that's the other thing that my career has morphed into and that i really 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 enjoy it's like learning another instrument honestly i wonder i i know that because of the pandemic things have kind of been put on hold but from the studio's point of view are you it sounds like you're really busy and you're still well, working a lot yes okay i am very busy monetarily i don't know if i want to go into that <laughs> <laughs> i'm i am very busy um but I'm also doing a lot of stuff in the, on the during all these months and everything that's basically on spec because it's with musicians that are out of work. So right. there's no money really to go around on it. Um, but at some point, there will be some money to be had back when, it, you know, uh, I'm one of those people where, yeah, you wrote me the other morning. You're like, hey, what is it? It must be like. 5 30 or 6 in the morning where you are it's like that well yeah it is and i get up <laughs> about five i know it seems kind of crazy as a musician but i get up so that i can come out and work on stuff paid or not every day in the studio because i need the time the studio is another part of being creative it's a creative process that involves a completely different skill set than playing an instrument um and there's so much to learn no matter how good you are um that i need the time to be able to just have that time and and work on stuff just for me so i'm out here at five or six o'clock in the morning by by eight o'clock or so you know or just before then i've got to get the the kids are all on online school right now but you know dogs got to be walked the kids have to be fed we have to get them on on their uh, online schooling and all that and everything. Um, so yeah, I'm busy. Um, I'm definitely not getting rich off of it. I'm in the same boat as everybody else who's uh, for the most part a touring or working musician. Um, but I'm not one of those people who would just go, well, I'm not getting paid for this, so I'm not gonna do it. Like I can't do that. I cannot do that. And there's, and likewise, there's people here in town that are amazing artists that we, a couple of them that I was working with prior pre COVID that it was like, well, I'd really like to come over and do this stuff, but I don't have any money. I'm just like, let's just do it. Like, let's just, it's better to be doing something than nothing. And it's, we'll just keep working on it and we'll, we'll log the time or, you know, we'll discount some of the time or whatever, but we'll log it and we'll just hope that the money's all going to come back around at some point, you know, um, I'm a little more conscious, obviously in my older years since I've had kids about money, but I just want to throw in there that when I started off this whole career, you know, from the time, like I said, when I was about 15 or so, when I saw Rod, I never once gave any money a thought you know, I never gave money a thought at all as far as wanting to be rich and famous or anything like that. I just never, it never occurred to me. I didn't know that by the time I was going to be 42, I was going to have my first kid. Had I known that, I probably would have put some more thought into that and, <laughs> and, and taking care of money a little bit better, but we're doing all right. You know, my wife works and, and, um, we've got some other source of income here and there and um you know it's a it's a struggle but i still feel successful 
And it's all about learning and doing something new, you know, for me and getting better at something. Well, it seems like your whole life, that's the way you've been, is always improving yourself and looking for getting better. This is pretty impressive. Well, I appreciate that. I will say, though, since COVID started, my drumming has suffered horribly. (laughs) Well, I I have to wrap this up, but I was going to ask you, my last question is, like, what have you learned about yourself because of the pandemic or or because of the situation? Well, I mean, we kind of just were talking about it right now, but I realized when everything shut down, well, on a funny note, actually, this is the first time that I've ever had in my life where I go to bed at the same time every night. So I have like, I'm asleep, I say maybe like 10 o'clock. And then that's, which is what allows me to get up so early. So I've realized that that's not a bad thing. I mean, I'm kind of being facetious here, but not really. It, 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 getting a good night's sleep is, is, is not a bad thing. And I, and I kind of get now the, the, this, for lack of a better word, the civilians, the people that are not musicians, that are not been touring musicians, um, having a schedule. I mean, I've just never had that. And that's been something that's um, actually been really beneficial. But on a more serious note, I felt right away when the pandemic hit, that I needed to start doing something that was going to be productive. Um, Of course, we didn't know it was going to go on this long. Mm -hmm. We thought maybe it'd be a couple few months, but I thought, yeah, I can't really just sit around here. But it also gave me a time to do some stuff with my kids, which was really awesome. So we had some projects and things around the house and outside the house that needed to didn't necessarily need to be done but we wanted to do we built a fence and a gate only using stuff off of my lumber pile and using my grandfather's their great grandfather's hand tools so they got to learn so i got to show them some of the stuff growing up working for you know uh, a man my dad ken bought um, that was a general contractor that showed me the tools of the trade. And, and I got to have a little bit of time with my kids doing that, which um, was really, really fun. It's not quite the same as getting up and going to the job site with the way that I did with my dad, but I really, really enjoyed that. And I just felt that as this time's been going on, there's been there's been some lulls here and there. We came out of the gate strong, playing Monopoly every night and, you know, having the family get together, you know, like time together. And, and, and then slowly as the weeks and months have gone by, like everybody going off to their separate corners of the house to just get away from each other, you know. But right. I keep coming back to... You know, I try to, I try to get at the end of the day when I'm laying down, I think about what I did during the day and kind of run it through my head real quick and kind of do a self-assessment. And I try to think of what could I do better? And, and I get up the next day and it could be anything. It could be the way that I was interacting with my kids. It could be the way that I was eating that day. It could be anything, but I get up and I 
and I try to do it differently and a little bit better. And I, and often I fail and I go to sleep that next that night and I right before I go to sleep, I start thinking about it. I think, oh, I did that again. Okay, I'm not going to do that. And so it's been kind of amplified with the pandemic because like I said, we're always really busy around here and doing stuff, but I've had this, this ties into having this schedule where I'm kind of going to sleep at the same night. So I've got this routine and it's kind of allowed me to do this self-assessment and think about things and just try to get up and, you know, I mean, it sounds kind of corny, but it's just trying to be a better person every day, you know, for in, in many different ways. And again, often failing, but you just got to just kind of keep trying, you know, every single day and do the best that you can. And I try to impart that to my kids, of course, you know, as well. But I think that being uh, creative is probably and staying creative and working on yourself or working on myself has been one of the things that I've really been in the back of my mind during this pandemic. Like I, it's been amplified. It's kind of come right. to the forefront. You know, I don't often do a very long interview with anybody, you know, so I appreciate it. And you're pointing out things like the band, you gravitate toward bands. You know, I've never really thought about that. You're right. <laughs> And, and it's, it's true, you know, so I appreciate that. Um, but, you know, it's self-reflection, I guess, is what it is. Right. Well, Jimmy, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate you taking the time and getting to know you a little bit. Absolutely, Mako. Thank you. I was going to say one thing. Every time I watch you play, and I've seen you many times at the Blues Music Awards, I, get, I see this Im image of you on, this, on the drum kit. And you seem to have perfect posture to me. Oh. You, you don't slouch. Is that my imagination? No, it's not your imagination. But that's because we skipped over a whole long subject of how I've had two back surgeries. And I'm actually missing the lower, the, the L5-S1 disc in my back. Oh. And so there was a period where I was not able to play literally months, six months, um, t twice actually. Well, three times now in my life where I twice where I was told I would never play again. So wow. um, one of the things I do every day is all these little, I call them old man exercises, you know, now, cause I don't go to the gym or anything anymore, but I got these, you know, the bands that you pull, yeah. down, the weights, the little weights, you know, and I'll probably start doing what my dad did when he got older. He had these like, if he had two five pounds weights in each hand, you know, if he did one rep, that was 10 pounds. And then the next one made it 20. And then three, he'd say, I lifted a 1800 pounds today. You know, <laughs> that's probably going to be me, but yeah, no, the posture thing is very important. And it's something I wish I had have either been told or listened to more when I first started out playing. Of course, there was a car accident that was involved in a bunch of other stuff as well, but yeah, the posture, is out of necessity is what it is okay well thank you again for doing this absolutely and, um, my pleasure really and everybody it. stay safe out there all right <laughs> 